Well, good morning again. I want to invite your attention to the book of Acts this morning. I'm going to be reading about eight or ten verses out of the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we're going to start off by reading those this morning, so you may need to grab you a Bible out of the pew if you don't have one, or you can look it up on your phone. And then after that, all the uh, scripture references will be on the uh, screen this morning. So it'll be in Acts chapter 2. Begin reading with verse 1 here. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Then I'm going to skip down to verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we uh, thank you for the things that we've been learning about the Holy Spirit. And I just pray for the next 25, 30 minutes here that, uh, Father, we just clear our minds that we don't worry about where we're going to eat or, or what's happening this afternoon. But, Father, we just focus on what you have to teach us today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On a dark night in October of 1973, a number of sheriff's, sheriff deputies in Zanesville, Ohio, reported seeing three pulsating globes over a graveyard at the edge of town. UFOs hovering over a graveyard may sound like a bad horror film, but almost 50 years ago, the truth was stranger than fiction as a UFO wave swept across the Midwest. Even the governor of Ohio at that time, John Gilligan, had a close encounter, in his words, with an amber-colored vertecraft for about 30 minutes as he was driving with his wife. He said, I saw one the other night, so help me. The shaken Gilligan said in a press conference that was later cited by Walter Cronkite during the national news. I'm absolutely serious. I saw this. It was not a plane. It was not a bird. It was not someone wearing a cape. I really don't know what it was. Gilligan was voted out of office the next year and many say that it's because many think that it was because he had lost credibility because of his UFO story. I have to think, what happened in that story, those verses we just read in Acts chapter 2, would have been something like having an encounter with a UFO. Nothing like what's recorded here had ever happened before. 
I believe the people that were there would have had a hard time convincing folks what really happened. Those folks in Acts chapter 2 would have been hard-pressed to tell what they saw, what they heard, and felt during that supernatural event. Those who probably tried to tell others who weren't present that day, I'm sure were met with some skepticism and some people that probably thought, these guys are nut jobs. I mean, it's that kind of event that you just, if you really study, it's like, wow. So we've come to call this the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is a transliteration that means 50, and it has to do with a Jewish feast. And what we want to do this morning, this is our third week of this series that we're calling Holy Spirit, Wind and Fire, is I kind of want to just kind of break this passage down here, these 13 verses, just look at what they have to say, and then I want to talk a little bit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of want to, after we kind of break down this passage this morning and see what it has to say about how do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, I want us to kind of talk about how do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and what are perhaps some ways that, that aren't signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's just kind of dive in here. On this day... It tells us there are about 120 people gathered. Luke doesn't necessarily tell us much, except he tells us it's a house. Uh, sometimes people think it's the upper room or that it's just a singular house. But most likely this refers to a courtyard area, a house and a courtyard. There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, most people would not have enough room in their house for 120 people. That's certainly probably true today and it would have been even more true back then. And it says that other people saw them. Well, most likely if they were inside the house, nobody else saw them. So most likely it's a house and a courtyard, maybe, maybe some type of, of compound. Those of you who have seen pictures of the Middle East today realize that there's, they put walls and stuff like that up around. And, it, and it's kind of what we would probably refer to as a compound oftentimes. And so then in verse 2, it says, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. Notice that word, suddenly. This is not like a tornado where there's a Torcon watch and people think that there might be a tornado coming. This is not like the banks of a river that are gradually rising up and might overflow and people are aware of it. This is not like a hurricane that's sitting out in the Gulf and for, for days they're trying to figure out where landfall is going to be. It's not like that. It's like, boom! Like an earthquake. I mean, it just happens. Just all at once. It just jolts them. And it says it was like a sound. So it wasn't the wind, but it was like the wind. The curtains probably didn't sway. There's probably no movement of the air. But in this ordinary environment of somebody's house and courtyard, there's this deafening roar, just suddenly. You know, I have a son that uh, flies helicopters in the military, and a couple times I've gotten to go out on a heliport with him. And uh, I think the first time he did it on purpose because he was trying to scare me. He didn't tell me he was going to crank the engines up. And so I'm just standing there talking, you know, and all at once he cranks up. And I mean, they're two 1,600 horsepower Whitney and Pratt engines that all at once fire. And I mean, that startles you. And then you get the whole rotor wash. I mean, 
it jolted me. I'll be honest with you. It made me jump because I wasn't expecting it. I think that's the idea here. I mean, can you imagine if you're in your backyard and, and you hear a noise like two 1,600 horsepower engines just, just cranking all at once or, or maybe like a Boeing 747 engine like you're standing there and all at once it, it, you hear that kind of noise? That's what happens here. Out of nowhere, it just jolts them. And then we get on to verse 3, and, and not only was there some amazing noise, there is an amazing sight. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about wind and fire, and we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and that reference of, of wind, pneuma. But this morning we're going to look at a little bit about the fire part of it. And so there's this amazing sight, it says in verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated or you could say distributed and came to rest on each of them so in other words it's not actual like literal tongues it's like these these ribbons you know how a fire will shoot out tongues so to speak that's what this was like it was like tongues of fire and there are other places in scripture where God is referred to as fire you know here at Burning Bush Baptist Church of course we're all very familiar with Moses being out in the desert of Midian and and the, the burning bush that the fire doesn't consume it and then you have in the Old Testament how the Israelites followed this uh, fiery glow up in the sky that is referred to as a pillar of fire so this is not that unusual but Luke describes it as tongues, like, like a portion of the fire or a ribbon of a fire that flew out and landed on each person. And the text suggests that it landed there long enough for each of those people to look around and realize that there was a ribbon of fire on each one of them. And then we get to verse 4, and we know that everyone has heard something Everyone has seen something. Everybody's probably felt something. And then you get to the most controversial part of this passage. They all said something. It reads, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You remember back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit and said, you would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. What the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Well, this has now happened. That's what happens. Verse 8 of chapter 1 is being fulfilled here in chapter 2. That they are receiving the power of the Holy Spirit so that they can be witnesses for Jesus. This is important. The purpose here. The purpose was not to bring these guys any type of glory or anything like that. It was so that they could become witnesses for Jesus. And so they begin to speak in other languages because the Holy Spirit gave them that ability. And there are a couple of key phrases here. The first key phrase is this, begin to speak. That phrase, if you go back grammatically and you look in the Greek, indicates that this ability would continue after this event. So in other words, these folks would, this, this, this Holy Spirit of filling would, would continue on. It's not a temporary thing. It's not just this day kind of thing for these people we're talking about. And it says, with other tongues. That refers to other languages. Now there are some camps that say that this is a heavenly language. 
and that it's a language that basically is just between God and, and the angels, and it might appear like it's gibberish to human ears, but it's a language that, that has, has heavenly connotations, and it's understood in the spiritual realm. realm. And, and there are groups today that still practice what we kind of refer to as, as speaking in tongues. And I want to just kind of mention some things. If you're a note taker, uh, you're gonna take, you can take some great notes today because we're going to have points and subpoints and subpoints of subpoints. Don't always do that, but uh, that will be the case this morning. And I think there are several factors here that point to this not being a heavenly language, but a human language. The first reason is this. Scripture tells us each person heard this in their own native language. So they hear it. It's not like it's, you know, something that they can't understand. Verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And some of the subpoints here that, that support this argument. The term translated language is dialectos in Greek, which... You recognize that probably is dialect. So each person heard their dialect, their language. Also, other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What does that mean? Well, it means they didn't all at once become bilingual. That, that's, that's not the idea. It was a supernatural ability that was given to them by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the promise of them being Jesus' witnesses. Another subpoint here. The word tongue can also be translated utterance. And so that word means to speak out boldly with emphasis. And it suggests that not only were they able to speak another language, but they were able to formulate thoughts and express themselves in another language. Now there's a difference between just being able to rotely say a word in another language or maybe being able to understand a sentence or something here or there, but being able to express thoughts is different. Like, I can ask Siri on my phone to tell me what friend is in Spanish, and it'll say amigo. But that's all Siri does. Siri can just give you a word. It can't formulate thoughts. It can't express things. Well, these guys weren't like Siri repeating something. They could actually express thoughts. They could express ideas. So those are three subpoints under the first one. The second reason that this is not a heavenly language has to do with the, when you look at the words others in tongue in verse 4, they are plural. That means there's more than one language. That means it's not like a heavenly language. Each heard it in their own language. The word various there translated others tells us it's multiple languages. Everybody is hearing a language, but they're hearing it in their own dialect. Thirdly, this is, this is really important. It's interesting, too. The practice of incomprehensible, ecstatic speech has kind of existed for, for years and eons in pagan religions. I mean, since the beginning of time, even to now. So think about that. If, if you're a person and you're watching this, and you, you've seen pagan religions do this all your life, well, it's not even going to get your attention, is it? You hear somebody blah, 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 over there or whatever, and you're like, oh, I've heard that before. And you just keep on walking by, right? But when you, when you hear it and you're like, wow, everybody's hearing this in their different language, that gets your attention. That is much more significant. That's unique. 
that's supernatural. So we see that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the reactions of the crowd, beginning with verse 7. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each hears in their own native language? So it tells us, some of the crowd was amazed. Now it doesn't resonate probably much with us today when you hear this, when they ask that question. Aren't they all Galileans? We're like, well, what, what, what's the significance of that? Understand how Palestine is kind of broken up at this particular point in history. The northern part of, of Palestine is, is kind of a, 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 a more backward part, maybe is the way to say it. There's not as much education there, especially formal education. We might call it like their country bumpkins or, or something along those kind of lines. Uh, one expositor put it this way. They tended to swallow their syllables when speaking. So these people, because they were less educated, they're, they're kind of country bumpkin kind of idea, uh, they, they just weren't looked up to. And so it makes a bigger impact. The northern group, I mean the southern group, they're more educated, they have more formal training, they spoke Aramaic, they spoke uh, Koine Greek, which was the, the Greek language of the empire at that particular time. And, you know, if you look at those verses that I kind of skipped, it lists all the different places. So there are Jews from everywhere, other parts of the world, and they are stunned to hear these uneducated Galileans from the north speaking so many languages so fluently. So they're amazed. But everybody's not amazed. It tells us in verse 13 that uh, some of them kind of put them down. And they say that they were drunk. That they had had too much wine. So that's the two ways the crowd reacted. Some were amazed and some rejected them. Now while people today may struggle with the idea of UFOs and alien contact... Those first century disciples, they had no trouble telling about their supernatural story. Yeah, some people rejected them, but if you go on down toward the end of chapter 2 and verse 41, it tells us 3,000 people became believers that day and were baptized. Do you see why I've been saying the last couple weeks, especially when I quoted A.W. Tozer, that the... The, the early church was totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Like if the Holy Spirit left, they were done for. And today, sometimes we can fool people, and you could argue whether or not if the Holy Spirit left us, church would go on as usual, our Christian living would go on as usual. But not for these folks. They were totally dependent on it. Now, there is confusion today about how do you tell if a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me say up front here, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. If, if, if you feel different about this, and I'm sure there are people that feel different about this, that's fine. Uh, I have folks that I disagree with in my circle of friends. I'm not trying to beat up your grandmother who used to smoke, spoke, speak in tongues and tell you that she's a false Christian and all that. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But I do want us to look at Scripture, and there is definitely confusion out there. Some churches expect their members to duplicate what happens at Pentecost, at least in part. They suggest that the ability to speak in tongues is necessary to prove that you are a believer. 
They tend to believe that the Holy Spirit takes residence up in you at the moment that you become a believer, which that part is true. But then they say that the outward sign of that is that you speak in tongues. Therefore, no speaking in tongues, that means no Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit means no salvation. Now, there's another camp, takes a little different view, and they refer to the Holy Spirit kind of as a second blessing. And the idea with the second blessing is you need to pray fervently for the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is kind of a manifestation that your spirituality is deeper than other people's spirituality. So the tongues are kind of a sign of that. That shows people that that maybe you're more spiritual than people who don't speak in tongues. Both of those views have significant biblical and theological flaws. Let's just kind of take a look at it. The first flaw is this. We are never commanded to repeat Pentecost, to seek it or experience. And the truth is we can't. We can't repeat the the parting of the Red Sea, can we? We can't repeat what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. And we can't repeat what happened at Pentecost either. These types of events are unique. They're done by God at a point in history to reveal something about himself to people. What God does, no one can duplicate. It is called supernatural by definition because that means it's something that only God can do. When we try to replicate that and God hasn't asked us to do that, the result is there's, there's suspicion and there's doubt and there's questioning and people begin to look at it like it's some kind of magician's illusion. How many of you are familiar with the uh, Oily Bible in Dalton? Just, just raise your hand up. You've, you've read about it. You've seen something about it. So, so the, the story is, I'm going to show you a clip here. Uh, this man said all at once his Bible started dripping oil. And I think we have a picture of it. And uh, so then he put his, his Bible in a container, and every night it fills up with oil. That's, that's his story, and I'll let you watch the video clip, and it'll fill in some more details for you. A North Georgia ministry has shut down. This after our media partners at the Times Free Press called into question the legitimacy of the oil the group has been using to reportedly heal people. Channel 3's Michelle Heron spoke to one of the ministry's leaders about the decision to shut down. Wyatt Massey's stories on a North Georgia ministry's oil-producing Bible has caught the attention of many. His name is Flowing Oil, caught this Chattanooga Times Free Press faith reporter's eye because of the number of people flocking to its services in Dalton. They got hundreds of people every week to come to their services, um, and it was much more focused on sort of worship and then this, this idea that the, the Bible was producing oil. The ministry's website includes testimonies from several people who say the oil from the Bible healed them. Massey says he started to look further into the phenomenon when he received a tip. One of the main leaders of that ministry uh, was, was going to tractor supply um, in, in Dalton regularly and, and buying mineral oil. He had vials of the oil from the Bible tested at UTC, and it matched the brand of mineral oil from the tractor supply in Dalton. 
The ministry has since shut down, but Jerry Pierce, one of the ministry's leaders, told Channel 3 he stands by the ministry's work and said while at one time he did buy mineral oil from Tractor Supply, he never mixed it with the oil produced from the Bible. He declined our request for an interview, but did say he disputes Massey's reporting. Story doesn't really end there. Those of you who have been following the story know about a week later, Jerry Pierce, the one that kind of headed up this ministry, uh, kind of teamed up with a pastor in Cleveland, Georgia. And now there is a guitar that leaks oil and also leaks gold flakes. And um, Robert Bankston, a, a pastor in that area there, said uh, people begin finding gold chunks and flakes at the church over a series of days in early February. And uh, the men also claim that flakes of gold have appeared in church members' Bibles during services. Allegedly, these videos appeared on Facebook of him finding this gold and stuff, but uh, those videos have since been uh, deleted. Pierce, for his part, the one that founded the Oily Bible, I can't remember the exact name of the ministry there in Dalton, continues to defend his work despite admitting that uh, as his leader he brought, bought mineral oil at Tractor Supply and, uh, and they've since kind of canceled uh, their ministries. You know, when somebody first asked me about this, this was before it came on the news and all that six or eight weeks ago, my response, they asked me what I thought, and I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to deny and just say somebody's not telling the truth because the Holy Spirit could obviously do anything he wants, but I was just very, very skeptical. And now it turns out to, to sure look like it was, was all a, a fraud, like seems to happen in a lot of these cases. And I don't know why people feel the necessity to do this kind of thing. I, I, don't, I don't. I don't doubt their hearts. But never are we called to do that. I don't know if people think that they have to make things happen for God or the Holy Spirit, but we're never called to do that. And then when it turns out to be a fraud... The non-believing world, they just lump us all together and we all look like crazy people. And again, like I said, I, I, I don't understand that. But I think the important thing is never are we commanded to do these sign gift types of things. We're just not. It's, it's not there. Secondly, the events that happen in Acts chapter 2 brought glory to God alone. That it was a one-time event marking a brand new era. It didn't bring glory to the people that were doing it. The glory was the amazing things that the Holy Spirit was doing. Their speaking in tongues did not prove their spiritual maturity. They're all brand new believers. There were no spiritually mature believers. Think about it this way. When a surgeon performs a life-saving procedure... After he's finished, do people go around and praise the scalpel? No, of course they don't. It didn't do anything on its own. Similarly, similarly whatever that word is, we, I, I, I did learn English. Lost my spot. We're incapable of supernatural activity on our own. And furthermore, the surgeon didn't choose that scalpel because it was jumping up and down going, pick me, pick me, pick me. That's not how it works. 
The scalpel was made by someone, sharpened by someone, sterilized by someone, and then put to use by someone. And we are no different. We, under, by ourselves, cannot make ourselves worthy or capable of supernatural power. Thirdly, we kind of dwelled on this while, dwelt on this while ago. Speaking in tongues produces a human language that can be understood by people from different nations. It wasn't an unintelligible utterance. It was a language. A few years ago, my family and I, we were on vacation, and uh, we attended a non-denominational church in there. He didn't really know anything about a whole lot about it anyway, but thought, of, you know, we'd go over there for, for a Sunday morning service. And uh, so we're well into the music part of the service, and, and the music stops. And the, the musicians walked off the stage, and, and it was a really big stage, probably three times the size of ours. And I noticed uh, a, a gentleman, a pastor, I guess, associate pastor, I guess is what he was, coming through the, the stage curtains, and he was walking just really slow and hesitant. I mean, just, just no faster than what I'm doing. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And he just kept, you know, he was very hesitant. He's, he's walking toward that lectern up there. And I thought, what is that about? He must be waiting for, for somebody. There's something, you know, it's a cue or something. Somebody has missed here. And so we're just watching him very slowly walk toward the lectern. And then all of a sudden, to my left, you know, just an utterance, a gibberish, whatever you want to call it, just comes out of nowhere. And my son, Sean, who was a lot younger at the time, his head spins and his eyes get as big as saucers. He'd never seen anything like that. And uh, so this, this lady continues for 30 or 40 seconds. And so the pastor finally, or associate pastor, finally gets to this lectern, and he just pauses. And then there's another just real long, awkward pause. And again, I'm like, somebody's missing a cue here. Something's supposed to be happening. And probably, literally, after a good minute, somebody finally stands up in the congregation and said, uh, they said God loves us, and then they sat back down. Now, I'm not going to, again, I'm not denying anybody's experience, but it just seemed very contrived. It just did. I mean, the, the pauses, the hesitation, just, it just seemed very contrived. Scripture tells us that it's an actual language, not some intelligible something. And when you go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, it tends to suggest that the sign gifts, these types of gifts, were for a time because we didn't have Scripture, and the tense of the verbs and stuff there, and we don't have enough time to get in, into all that, seemed to indicate that those things went away once we had a Bible because they were no longer necessary to prove that someone was a genuine Christian. And when you look earlier in the passages over in 1 Corinthians, you see that comparison between the pagan religions and, and Jesus and, and the necessity of having those types of things. Again, I'm not trying to beat anybody else. I'm not up. I'm not trying to tell people that they, they don't have an experience. Your grandma's false Christian or whatever. I'm just looking at what Scripture has to say. And I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. Lastly, never are we commanded to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or to produce a supernatural evidence of the Spirit. God does give us the Holy Spirit immediately when we're believers. And anything he does in us after that is by his choice. So if it's not those things that give evidence of the Holy Spirit, 
what are some ways that we can tell if, if, we're, if, if the Holy Spirit is in us? Because Scripture does say that when you become a believer, you are filled with, this, with the Spirit. There are a couple different things. We talked about one of them last week. It's spiritual gifts. God has given us all spiritual gifts. And like we said last week, we can't do an entire sermon series on that. It would take us forever. I mean, we could do a sermon series on it, but don't have enough time to talk about it today. And, uh, but the, the important part was that these were for the benefit of other people, and they were to glorify God. And then the other one that we didn't talk about yet is fruit of the Spirit. Those are indicators of a Spirit-filled life. Over in the book of Galatians chapter 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And... So again, you could do a whole sermon series on this. Probably don't have enough time to do that uh, this morning. And so I thought, well, how could we just kind of do like we did last week and maybe just pick out one thing? And so what I thought was maybe we could do a survey this morning. And so here's, how we'll, here's what we're going to do. So like I'm going to go through a list. Here. I'm going to go through the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And guys, when you hear the one that your wife needs to work the most on, I want you to applaud really loudly. Okay, and then wives, we're going to do the same thing. When I go through the list and we get to the one that your husband needs to work the most on, I want you to applaud really loud too. Okay, everybody good? We're not really going to do that. You know I'm joking, right? <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Man, there'd be fights all over the place this afternoon. I can't believe you applauded like that. Well, I can't believe you stood up and applauded like that. So, so, so we're not going to go there. But I did see a survey. It was done with older children. And particularly they were asked about their dads. And they said, what do you think your dad needs to hear about? And they were given the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And then they were asked to, to, to grade kind of the ones that they felt that their dad needed to work on the most. So you want to know what the kids said? Number three, I would have thought this was number one, but number three is patience. Turns out that that uh, you need a little bit of patience as a dad. And uh, I agree with that, but I would agree that moms need more patience than dads do because they have to be patient with the kids and they have to be patient with the dad. At least that's how it works in my house. Runner-up was self-control. And then the number one, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, it kind of did me, gentleness. The kids said the things that their dad, the one that their dad needs to work on the most is gentleness. I see a few kids smiling about their dads this morning. <laughs> now, I would have thought that one would have been toward the bottom. But I think it's one of those that we usually overlook. One guy said it this way. Gentleness tends to be, if you will, the rhubarb of the fruit of the Spirit. Like you're vaguely aware that it's a fruit, but it's not something that you give a lot of attention to and seek after. And, uh, and maybe the reason is the definition of gentleness it is the power and strength that is under control for the benefit of someone else. So it's power and strength that's been disciplined. It's under control so that people around you can benefit from you. Now it also sounds a little bit like patience, doesn't it? I'm sure there's some overlap there. Now when I think about men and I think about gentleness... I think generally we as men think of gentleness as kind of being a weakness, right? That's, that's kind of what we associate 
with it like gentlemen don't they're not aggressive enough to win ball games gentlemen you know men that are gentle don't climb the corporate ladder men that are gentle are not going to get the best parking places right i mean that's just kind of the way the way we think about it and um my thesaurus i looked it up and got some interesting synonyms for gentleness mild tender docile and soft now that's some words every man wants to be described by right I mean, don't you want to be called docile and soft? I've been called a lot of things in my day, and most of them I laugh off. But if you call me docile and soft, we might have to go a few rounds. I'm like, I'm not going to appreciate that at all. But what he's talking about here, it's it's not a weakness. It's a strength. It's a discipline. It's strength under control for the benefit of someone else. Real strength. If you go back to Galatians chapter 5 and you go back earlier in the passage before where we just read earlier, there's, there's another part of the passage that's sometimes called the acts of sinful nature. And in the acts of sinful nature, there's things listed for each one of the fruit of the Spirit that are kind of the opposite. And so if you look at that, the opposite for gentleness is fits of rage and outburst of anger. Maybe that's those two different ways of translating it. And so that's the opposite of gentleness. It's emotional frustration that gets out of control to the detriment of everyone else. It's being disengaged from what's happening. Or then something happens and you suddenly lose it. It's a constant state of aggravation and you just get annoyed at every little thing and you kind of have a scowl on your face all the time. It's the person who's always defensive and just constantly critical in a perpetual bad mood. That's the opposite of gentleness. And we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live, or don't grieve the Holy Spirit, maybe your translation. In other words, don't make the Holy Spirit sad by the way that you live. Then it goes on in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. So what do we see in this context here in 30 and 31? That at least to some degree, what brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit is bitterness, rage, anger, and harsh tones. When God speaks us, when the Holy Spirit hears us, when God hears us speaking to people that particular way, it brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit. And I think, like I said earlier, when we, when we hear these things and the fruit of the Spirit, I think our first, we, we hear those and we think, well, I need to do something about this in our life. And our first thoughts go to a self-improvement plan or I need to get me a self-help book or I need to go to anger management class or something like that. But that's not what this is saying. The idea is that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in Christ, we raise our sails, so to speak, and He fills our sails and He grows gentleness into our lives. It's not about trying harder to be gentle, it's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The verse after that, verse 25, after the fruit of the Spirit since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's it. 
walking with the Spirit. So let's just get practical here real quick for our last minute or two. Just really practical. Filling our... with being Spirit-filled. Letting God work in our lives. The Spirit's already there, but there's some factors that come into play. Number one, repentance. Repentance makes room for the Holy Spirit. Repentance says to the Holy Spirit, I know that my angry words, and we're just going to use that particular fruit this morning as an example, my harsh tones have made you feel unwelcome. I realize that my harsh words and my shortening with, with others and my outbursts not only grieve other people, but they also hurt you. They grieve you. I have sinned not just against other people, but I have sinned against the Holy Spirit. And you repent, and the Holy Spirit knows that he is welcome. Step two would be surrender. When throughout the day, going back to verse 25, you stay in step with the Spirit. You surrender words before you speak them. You surrender the right to be offended when someone offends you. You surrender irritations and frustrations to the Holy Spirit. And then like we talked about last week, you just ask for that power. Over in the book of Luke chapter 11 verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And we just talked about that last week, like, like, like your, your homework was just, just in the shower or wherever every day, just at the beginning of the day, just to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill you. Just to ask for the, you know, the Holy Spirit to rain down on you so that you live your day thinking about what God wants you to do. And again, just kind of using this one example of gentleness, maybe the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit working in some of us would just be the fact that we would be encouraging people and that we would be positive people and we would speak in, in tongues of grace and gentleness because maybe that's a foreign language to you and you haven't spoken it in a while and, and maybe you weren't raised that way and you need to grow into that. And people would absolutely see a difference if you let the Holy Spirit take over the way you talk. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, and Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all these folks this morning. They lost an hour's sleep, but Father, it was important to them to be here today and to, to worship and to hear your word. And I just pray as we're in week three of this series, talking about the Holy Spirit, that you just help us to each kind of grapple with it to understand what it means to be surrendered to you, to, let the, to, to have our lives spirit-filled so that the fruits of the Spirit are, are, are evident, that your gifts that you've given us are being used, and help us to take that as a challenge, too, to discover all that. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.